So welcome to another edition of AML Voices. I'm very happy today to have uh, Shannon Frontenez from uh, Thompson Reuters Special Services. And Shannon's, uh, besides the work she's doing with her various clients, has a master's in museum studies with a specialization in provenance research from John Hopkins, um, which tells you a lot about uh, obviously what she's passionate about besides her day-to-day -day work, and that is the space of uh, dealing with arts and antiquities. That's something that our community, the AML community, in the past several years has, has become aware of. We know that we have we have legislation that, that was signed, uh, passed into law back in uh, 2021 that will eventually, it doesn't yet, but it will eventually put antiquities dealers, advisors, and sellers under the Bank Secrecy Act. We also know that the, uh, the art industry is uh, the subject of a treasury report that said that art can be misused for illicit gains through money laundering or financial crime. But at this point in time by the treasury, it's not a priority in terms of uh, regulation, but could eventually become that. So this becomes an area for AML professionals to have an understanding of why this is important, what we can do, and Shannon's going to spend some time with us today uh, to walk us through some of that. So let me start with this, Shannon, uh, and that is uh, the definition of provenance. I mean, it's something that uh, I know very little bit about, more than I did before, <laughs> but if you could define those terms for us and then obviously have some follow-ups for you. Yeah, of course. So provenance is a um, relatively newer department or study in the museum world. Uh, we've only kind of see it really come into being really the past like decade or so. Uh, so what provenance research is, is essentially the study of an object's ownership history from the time of its creation to present day. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, that's short and sweet. <laughs> no, no, that, that that's extremely helpful. Um, so one of the things that we're grappling with, when I say we, I mean the AML community to try to better understand this is sort of set the stage for us why this is uh, a problem, why this is a challenge, not provenance, but why, it, why it's a problem that uh, cultural artifacts, we know when they're being destroyed, and that obviously harms the legacy of countries going back centuries, of course, but when they're being used uh, by cartels, terrorists, or what have you, sort of walk us through why this has become an issue that's front and center uh, with many in the uh, AML community based on your research and your work? Sure. So um, we've seen some kind of examples of it uh, that we've seen with looting and obviously the looting and illegal trafficking of antiquities has always been a problem. Uh, however, in recent years, antiquities trafficking has grown to just an unprecedented rate. Um, and the increase is mainly due to the highly profitable market demand for artifacts by Western museums and collectors. Um, just to give you kind of an idea, uh, it's been kind of estimated that the value of this trade ranges from about seven or several hundred million to billions of dollars annually. So this is a huge, huge market that we're seeing. And it's just an ideal place for organized crime, uh, terrorist groups and military groups um, to use and take it full advantage of that. Uh, so kind of I guess an example of that would be how ISIS used antiquities trafficking to finance their terroristic agendas. 
And I know the FAF report was that came out earlier this year. It's great and really insightful into how like terrorist groups are using illegal antiquities um, as a trade and uh, I guess legal antiquities trade as a method of financing. And we're also seeing a lot of criminals laundering money through the buying and selling of high-end art and artifacts, um, such as with the British art dealer Matthew Green, who used a Pablo Picasso painting to launder an estimated $9.2 million. So this is literally the lack of regulations is just black hole, if you will, I guess, organized crime really reaching in and digging into this sector because it is a very highly profitable and lucrative enterprise for the looting and trafficking of antiquities. Explain that Pablo Picasso example in terms of the laundering of it. How how does that work? Is it uh, similar sort of trade-based money laundering where they, they the value is, uh, since the value is sort of, well, I would argue sort of subjective, and so uh, the purchase and sale. So give us that as an example to the non-experts like like me and others are, that how they launder money through the use of something like that. For this one, um, this was just a piece in a huge $50 million, I guess, illicit money laundering scam. So they used the Picasso to obviously laundered, uh, launder uh, illegal funds through this art and actually tried to sell it to an institution, uh, one of, a museum in, in the UK. Right. Um, and how they're, I guess, how they're doing it is because, you know, obviously <laughs> art is subjective, so they're not going to have uh, a set value every time. But if they break it down by artifacts and artworks, I mean, you can amass a huge amount of funds, of illicit funds in a more legal sense, if that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. So let's go, let's talk about the museum. So we know that in the AML world, the concept of knowing your customer, in some cases, knowing your customer's customer is sort of front and center. So understanding it. So when those of us in that world, we're we're used to uh, trying to determine source of funds, that sort of thing, museums, a bit different, right? So how do they assess the sources for artifacts that they are given or they purchase? And is is there a standard of any sort? Yeah, great question. So most museums are to a degree self-regulated when it comes to the acquisition of art and artifacts. They tend to rely on following their procedures and practices that are laid out in their collections management policy. Now, these collection management policies vary based on institutions. So there's no standardized policy, right? Um, Additionally, they do tend to adhere, obviously, to accessioning guidelines established by the American Alliance of Museums, um, the International Council of Museums, uh, obviously international and domestic laws and regulations, and more importantly, the UNESCO 1970 Convention, which involves the prohibiting and preventing of the illicit import, export, and transfer of, of ownership of cultural property. Now, with that being said, the level of due diligence to which a museum will adhere to is very much decided in-house. There is not, as I said before, a true standardization or consensus by museums on how to best conduct due diligence or the provenance research of an object. So So, some... Oh, sorry. No, no, no. Go ahead. Sorry. Finish up. 
Um, some aspects of assessment and investigation into the object history can be by examining um, legal documents, insurance documents, import-export, custom forms, inventories, correspondence, and they do tend to do, most museums do tend to do a physical examination of an object as well for indications of damage due to illegal excavation techniques or looting or suspicious restoration that has been done to the object. Uh, but the problem that we're seeing is museums don't really tend to investigate thoroughly the object seller and or donor and their dealings. So as we know from the art and antiquities world, there tends to be a level of trust that's extended to sellers like auction houses and art dealers who have established a rapport with these institutions over the years, which is extremely problematic because unfortunately we've seen several scandals, scandals within recent years that these criminal actors are dealing in illegal, you know, legally trafficked artifacts. Um, one example that kind of just comes to mind is the smuggling ring run by Sebastian Kapoor, who was a very prominent New York arts dealer. Um, and he led a huge ring of antiquity smuggling from 2011 to 2022 out of specifically out of Asia. He smuggled roughly about 2,600 objects from India, Cambodia, and several other countries in Asia with an estimated value of $107 million, which proves the point that in-depth due diligence cannot be neglected by these institutions. It needs to be applied to not only the object history, but the owners and dealers as well. So the institutions know exactly who they're dealing with. When the museums are criticized or even potentially prosecuted, what is, their what is their defense about not having more due diligence about determining so uh, the source? Uh, you know, what is their argument if, if, maybe that's the wrong word, but what is their response? Because I've seen some things in the trade press uh, and I can recall, you know, 30 years ago, the banks sort of saying the same thing when regulations first began. Hey, we're not law enforcement. You know, we're, we're a business or, you know, I guess the museums say they're not for profit and we don't have the resources to do all this. What, what sort of uh, uh, response or arguments do they make when people like yourself and others like us in the community say, hey, look, this is being used for the movement of illicit funds, for money laundering, for all sorts of ways to enable financial crime and more needs to be done here. Uh, and and they turn around and, and say what? I've seen, in my experience, I've seen a lot of situations to where it's, they'll fall back on the regulations. Oh, well, we're not, to your point, law enforcement, we're not needing to do these kind of regulations. Like there's no specific regulation and check for this that requires us to do this. I've also seen the financial aspect of, oh, well, we didn't have the money to um, hire a provenance researcher. And I've even seen the the third one, which I just kind of laugh about <laughs> um, how oh, we did our due diligence and nothing suspicious came up, which I'm sorry. <laughs> right. if, if you acknowledge that if you're looking at something that's a very priceless artifact, I mean, you have to do an extra level of due diligence. You need to really dig in deep and make sure that that object, that artifact is legally, has been legally obtained and is legally owned by the entity or the person who's selling it to you. And that one just always kind of makes me just laugh. Like, did you really do that extra, extra in-depth look? Did you really hire a provenance researcher to really dive into these? Like, Because provenance researchers, this is what they're here for. This is what a big part of their job is to really dive in and dig and find out 
exactly the history of this object, who owned this object, and if it could have been looted, if it could have been stolen. And I, I think those are the three big ones that I've seen that museums kind of fall back on and like, oh, we did our due diligence, but it still happened. It's not our fault, essentially, which to me is just ridiculous. Like museums and institutions are institutions of public trust and they have to, when dealing with artifacts, they have to make sure that they're checking all the boxes and performing the correct and adequate and efficient uh, due diligence, you know? Yeah. Um, how prevalent are independent um, owners of artifacts and art? So obviously the museums we get because there, there's yeah. volume there. Uh, but how prevalent in terms of the movement of uh, something that's being used uh, by a cartel or a terrorist or what have you, where an individual, a very rich individual is simply uh, purchasing these things? Is that also problematic that that yeah. happens as well? Yes, yes, that happens quite frequently. Um, I know several years ago, I was reading an article about how a British or a Brazilian billionaire was amassing laundered funds through artifacts and art, and he was collecting. And when the FBI seized them, I mean, they seized over $500 million worth of art um, and artifacts. So, I mean, it is extremely prevalent, very, very prevalent, which is another reason why the this illegal trafficking of artifacts has become, has grown so much and become just such a, you know, pretty much billion dollar industry annually. So that is extremely prevalent as well. So without asking you to weigh in um, on a um, legislative uh, or regulatory area, it would seem to me, based on what you just said, that whenever the regulations are crafted to put antiquities dealers and sellers and purchasers, you know, advisors, what have you, under the Bank Secrecy Act, that a potential gap could be individuals, sort of how they're defined, right? If if I'm a billionaire, but I'm only buying a couple of pieces, so I'm not really considered, and I'm I'm totally guessing on this, right? And I and I'm uh, I'm not considered a a buyer under the regulation because let, let's say as they craft it, they try to figure out well how are we going to do this so mm -hmm. that it's operational, and they make a decision that buyers of less than, you know, again, totally making this up, yep. two or three pieces are not going to be included. So it seems to me just based on that, in order mm -hmm. to make sure that this is a comprehensive approach, they're going to have to figure out some way that individual buyers have some obligation to determine source, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes, absolutely. It's a very complicated process. It really is. As we all, as we all know, it's just complicated with the regulations and making sure that we're trying to encompass, you know, everything so that there are regulations, especially in the art market and the antiquities market, where there hasn't been regulations really before, right. you know, the past couple, you know, decades. So that's definitely something that needs to be thought through and it will create, if it's not thought through, I guess, effectively, it could create a gap to where, you know, you're, you're coming through with people buying, oh, one or two pieces over here. And then a couple years later, another couple pieces, and it's not hitting the radar. It's not going under radar, getting noticed. Uh, that makes sense. I, I should have asked this next one first, after you define Providence, and that's um, to be um, whatever, say what, you know, for a non-expert, someone that's not enmeshed in this, or someone that's maybe not even in the AML field, 
besides the obvious where the use of some of these artifacts are enabling terrorism, uh, why should people in general public care? Why should we care that artifacts are uh, being taken from the rightful place and they're sold to somebody else? I mean, I, obviously, I, I believe we should care. But how do you make that case to the general public? Hey, look, there's a reason why Congress decided we're going to eventually include this. And FATF, of course, talks about this. But what what's the damage that's caused by this, the theft of artifacts, obviously the destruction of artifacts, given all your research and all the work you've done, um, you know, in, in the past? With no clear, and I'm going to kind of par paraphrase this a little bit different, with no clear process on conducting effective provenance research on artifacts uh, and a significant lack of thorough due diligence conducted on the sellers and traders of antiquities, mm -hmm. it creates an environment where stolen, smuggled, looted artifacts can be passed off as legally obtained and access accessioned into these public and private institutions. When this is allowed to happen, it encourages these criminal actors and organizations to go out and continue collecting and stealing and looting these artifacts. When this happens, it's completely devastating on so many levels to cultural heritage because we lose important information about that object. Well, not only that object, right? The object, but the individual who created it, the culture it belonged to. And so in essence, we're losing a piece of its history that we can never get back. Right. And I uh, think that the public needs to be aware of that, that it's not just, oh, it's just a, a, a rock or a statue. Like it's a part of something much greater and much more important than people realize. And I think that's the kind of, Thing that people need to, the general public needs to be aware of that when this is happening, the our cultural heritage, we're losing it. But piece by piece, we're losing it because there could be something that that statue, that artifact could have told us about a culture, about a person, about you know its its own history, and we've lost that, which is devastating. That's perfect, Jenna. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so. Someone reaches out to Thomson Reuters and they say, oh, we want to have Shannon on the team that helps us prepare uh, for an eventual antiquities regulation. So without, obviously, we don't know what it's going to look like, but what can the, the broader question would be, uh, as you're brought in to talk to the institution, what can the AML community do now to be more proactive. We don't know the regs yet, so we don't know exactly what the record keeping and reporting is going to be, obviously. But besides awareness, how would you recommend institutions? Let's face it, they're not going to have, there's so many predicate offenses under the money laundering statutes. You don't have experts in 200 different crimes. But because this has become a major topic um, for financial crime professionals, and uh, you know it's, it's it's been on people's radar now for a couple of years. Um, how would you get an institution started to both be aware of this, and then what sort of training tools? Again, knowing full well we don't have a reg yet, so I understand that part. But just in general, we bring you in and say you're an expert. You have this background. Besides what you just told me about the importance of this, how would you sort of kick it off and start? explaining to an institution what they can do today to be more aware of this issue than than they were yesterday? So I think with this one, obviously, the raising awareness is a big part of it, right? 
just getting the word out that institutions need to conduct more effective methods of due diligence and provenance research when dealing with artifacts and their sellers, right? But I think an addition to that would be that if a company is looking into, we want to purchase this artifact, right? Or we want to deal with this dealer. What steps do we need to take? Well, I would say you need to really break it down. You need to break it down and isolate, see that dealer as a separate entity that you're looking into, see that artifact as its own entity, instead of kind of museums have done this where they kind of group them together. And by grouping them, they focus more on the object ownership than the actual seller. I think it needs to be broken down. I think that it needs to be, they need to be separated. And I think that the due diligence needs to be conducted on the seller, seeing who they're associated with, um, trying to figure out uh, what kind of dealings they've done, what kind of companies or other entities they've worked with or worked for, uh, and then obviously the object history. But I think some of the best ways to do that, like tools to use for that, are honestly really doing your open source research using, there's so many, so many databases out there that you can use to get additional information. There's so many research institutes, like the Getty Research Institute is great and has so many resources and databases that are very helpful in conducting provenance research for an artifact. Um, there are also additional databases and articles um, provided by ICOM, the Looted Art Commission, Interpol, and IFAR. Um, so there's just so many different tools that are out there that individuals and entities can use be more aware, become more aware of who they're working with and where their artifacts have been throughout history. Um, so I don't think it's like a set in stone because obviously each case will vary, but I think that it just needs to be the overarching message is that you need to be diligent when it comes to looking into these entities and individuals and the objects. Like you, there are so many databases out there and you just need to be aware and identify what you're looking based on case, case by case basis. Oh, that's great. Shannon, I'll get you out of here on this. Um, we talked a bit about the response you get today from museums and art dealers. So the broader question is, given everything that's been uh, elevated in terms of the public consciousness and the Manhattan DA's office has prosecuted people, obviously internationally, it's a big issue. Mm -hmm. um, your view on whether museums and art dealers are getting the message are, are they understand that not that they know there's going to be but but they understand do they understand that they have more of an obligation um and not a regulatory but more it's more important for them now to be paying attention to this than they were before are they getting the message do you think i believe that museums are starting to understand the importance of conducting provenance research and extra due diligence, uh, especially when we're starting to see larger, well-known institutions like the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York hiring a team of provenance researchers. And they're looking, they were looking in March, I believe, of this year, um, which a decade ago, we could probably count on one hand how many museums staffed a full-time provenance researcher. Um, I can only think of two at the top, <laughs> on the top of my head. Um, and I think that a good rule for museums to think about is that if you're not certain of the, of the due diligence that you're doing, of the research that you're doing, if you're not certain whether acquiring an artifact will be problematic or not, it's best not to acquire it. The risks of losing public trust and acquiring a trafficked artifact are not worth the museum's integrity. I think, and I think that's, they are starting to understand that now, but it's taken us a, quite a long time to get to this point and there's still a long way to go.
Well, Shannon Frontenez, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. You, you're adding to the the outreach that we're, we've been trying to do for a couple of years. And uh, we'd love to have you back once there's a regulation. But thanks, thanks a lot for spending time with us today. Thank you so much, John. I really did enjoy this. And it was a pleasure doing this podcast with you.